Last week, we were exploring our vision statement, which is at the top of our vision and mission document, which says, we long to see God's name honoured, his kingdom come and lives transformed. The vision is the thing we're aiming for, the place we want to be, where we want to go, what we hope to look like. For the next three weeks, we're exploring the next section, our mission Our mission statement is making, growing, sending disciples of Jesus, which is actually in our logo as well there at the top. If our vision is what we hope to see, our mission is how we get there, how we want to journey along that. It's how we join in with what God is doing. But we have this graphic here, this circular thing, which illustrates planting new seeds, seeing those seeds grow, and then bearing fruit and scattering more seed to grow. It shows purpose and direction. There's little arrows in the circle there. But it's deliberately circular because our mission doesn't stop this side of heaven. A year ago, if you can remember that far ago, we did a ministry review, which probably almost everyone in this room filled in at least one questionnaire. Do you remember doing that? So this is the analysis of question six. Can you remember question six? Probably not. Question six gave nine statements that you were all asked to score. So three statements related to making disciples, three statements related to growing disciples, and three statements related to sending disciples. The lowest scores came in making disciples of Jesus. In fact, three of the four lowest scores came under that heading, Uh, which, to be honest, is exactly what I was expecting. I think if most churches answered that questionnaire, we'd get a very, very similar result. But that's no excuse. Something else that came up in the questionnaire, we asked you all at the end to write in some comments. And one of the most common comments was requesting some teaching on the vision and mission. So if you're fed up with this series, it's your fault that we're doing it. The idea being, what does all this mean? What does it all look like in practice? And so we have this five-week series exploring it in more detail. And as Bobby said, today we are looking at what making new disciples of Jesus means. So the reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are looking at making disciples. You'll see I've added a little word in there, making new disciples, to clarify exactly what we mean by this. This is what it says on the mission document. Making new disciples of Jesus means that we all share what God calls us to share. Good news that through Jesus, everyone can be forgiven, adopted as children into God's family, and receive new life in his kingdom. And I'm going to answer three questions today. What, why, and how? 
fairly straightforward questions, and they all sort of begin with M. Transformation has an M in it, and uh, metamorphosis is a bit of a posh word, so I went with transformation. So what do we mean by making new disciples? Transformation. Why should we do it? Our motivation. And how do we do it? Our method. Now, uh, on the day that Jess and I got married... She and her mum, her sisters and her best friend spent a long time doing each other's hair and uh, makeup and putting on dresses, all getting ready for the big day. It was a lot easier for the boys. My best man and I simply got up and put our suits on and turned up. But that afternoon, the transformation was complete. We were dressed and ready for the wedding. It's quite hard to say. The Bible often uses pictures to describe becoming a disciple of Jesus. And one of them is about getting dressed, getting changed. Colossians 3 verse 10. You have taken off your old self and with its practices and have put on the new self. It's about getting changed. So that morning I took off my pyjamas and I put my suit on. I don't think I've looked that smart since. Another picture the Bible uses is of new life. This is from 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So at 2pm, the old bachelor Ben died and a new Ben was born, Jesse's husband. I was still me, but something profound had happened. Something had changed. I was transformed into someone new. And of course, I'm spending the rest of my life figuring out what that means. There are other pictures too in the Bible about this transformation, passing from darkness into light, being born again, being adopted into a new family, becoming citizens of heaven, a new country, being set free from slavery to sin so we can serve God, having our hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. There are many pictures, and they all have one thing in common. They describe a transformation. Something fundamental has happened. And we see that in the criminal on the cross. This is from Mark 15. They crucified two rebels with Jesus, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, come down from the cross and save yourself. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And yet Luke tells us that later this happened. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The one criminal carried on insulting Jesus. But something changed in the other. He went from heaping insults on Jesus to defending him to asking for salvation. 
Luke doesn't tell us what happened as they were hanging there. But I picture Jesus on the cross, even on the cross, telling people about the kingdom of God. Which led to one of those criminals saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And a man was saved. He was the first to pray something like what the Orthodox Church called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a simple prayer. To summarize, help. That's all we need to do. Because Jesus does the rest. His light conquers the darkness. Jesus pays the price to set us free from sin. Jesus gives us his rights as God's only son so we can be heirs with him of all God's blessing, adopted into God's family. Now, of course, there's more to being a disciple than that, which we will look at next week when we look at growing disciples. Of course, the thief on the cross didn't have much time to figure out what it meant to live as a child of God. But in that moment, his heart was transformed. And that's what we mean by making new disciples. Inviting people into our building, serving them food, sharing and showing God's love in all sorts of ways. That's wonderful. I love it when we do that. But that is not making disciples. All those things can be a step along the way for someone. They can provide many and wonderful opportunities to grow relationships, to show and to share God's love. But unless we introduce people to Jesus, we have served some needs, but ignored people's greatest need. Now, when I took my first communion service, I was handed a little bottle of hand sanitizer. Dutifully, I put some on my hands and I rubbed it until my hands were dry, as I still do before communion. Then I said the communion prayer. I broke the bread and I handed a piece of bread to everyone that came up. Afterwards, Jess asked me what sanitizer I had used. Because it turned out it was cucumber and mint. It smelled fresh to me, but it left a bitter taste on my fingers. So every single piece of bread I handed out had a bitter taste on it. So we decided to do something about that. So we we bought a, a range, half a dozen or so different brands. This was one of them. It has the advantage of being extremely effective, alcohol free, so it doesn't dry out your hands. It's odorless and it's tasteless. It was absolutely perfect. So we had a winner. So ever since then, this is nearly 10 years ago, I've been using it for communion. And it really came into its own during COVID, of course, when we didn't simply wash our hands before eating, we sanitised our hands too. So it meant every single meal, we didn't have a nasty bitter taste unless it was caused by the food. (laughs) I bought a dispenser for my church in the toilet. We now have two dispensers of it in this church, by the toilets and by the door. And uh, to anyone that asked, I sang its praises and I encouraged them to buy some. I was a proper eco-hydra evangelist. The product was so good, I I couldn't help it. And that's the first of the three C's of the next M, motivation, compulsion. Sometimes the best evangelists are new Christians. Why? Because they are so full of wonder and excitement at having met Jesus, they can't help themselves. It overflows 
from them. It's natural because they're not putting it on. And that's why it's often effective. It's not perfect. It's not precise. They don't necessarily know all the different answers, the different questions people might ask them. But it comes from deep inside them. And so people listen. That excitement that new Christians have is raw. It's emotional. But it doesn't last forever. If your Christian walk is like mine, you will get glimpses of that excitement every now and then. Perhaps sometimes you'll burn hot with it when God does something amazing in your life. And then it kind of fades away. It's a bit like the honeymoon period in a marriage. It does end at some point, and the husband and wife have to work out how to live together for the rest of their lives without killing each other. (laughs) So it is with us and God. We have to learn what it looks like after that raw emotion dies down. And I think that's where the next C comes in for our motivation, compassion. The word means suffering with. It's, it's about sharing someone else's pain, their journey, walking with them, loving them. And I think it's one of the words that best describes how Jesus was with all sorts of people. Mark says this, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now, we might expect that to say, so he began feeding them. And actually, that is what happens. That's the beginning of the feeding of the 5,000. If you know Mark, that's the first verse of that miracle. But first, he taught them because of his compassion. That is the proper expression of compassion. Jesus healed everyone who came to him. He spoke gently to those at the bottom of the social pile. He turned no one away except those who rejected him. And if you know Mark, as I said, the feeding of the 5,000 follows that verse. First, he gave them the food they really needed. He taught them. And what he taught them was about the kingdom of God. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. See, in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus' fame was growing... And he was doing miracles, and he was teaching, and he was casting out demons. He was getting quite popular, and there were crowds all over the place. And so there's this incident where he he disappears off to a quiet place to pray, very wisely. And his disciples sought him out to get him back, because there was so much need. There are so many people to heal. There's so much hunger, Lord. Come back. And Jesus says, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. For that is why I have come. He still healed people. In fact, the next verse, that was Mark 1, 38 to 39. In Mark 1, 40, he heals a demon. He still fed people. But his compassion motivated him for his real mission, to teach people about the kingdom of God, to call them to repent, to turn back to God and receive his life. That's what Jesus says the gospel is in Mark 1, because that is our greatest need, and he loves us. So that's why he begins with teaching. So as we lose our compulsion, the the bubbling over that means we simply can't help but tell people about Jesus, we need to learn and pray for compassion, the same compassion that Jesus had for others, 
It's not second best, but it does take more effort, so we need to put more effort in. And it's easier to give up. And I think when that starts happening, that's when we need our third C, command. We share the gospel quite simply because Jesus commands us to. This is from our reading. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Having received all authority, having gathered his disciples together for one last time, this is what Jesus said, and this is what Jesus commanded. Go and make disciples. Friends, it might not be your favourite thing to do, telling people about Jesus. You might find it difficult, like me. It might be the last thing you want to do on a Monday morning. But if Jesus is Lord, and he is, then we don't have a choice. We simply have to find a way. If all else fails, our motivation for making new disciples is this. Jesus told us to do it. And he promised to be with us, by our side, helping us every single day as we do it. Which brings us nicely to our third M, method. How do we do this thing? Some of us are gifted evangelists. I've met a couple before. They're amazing. They, they just talk about Jesus so naturally. It's a, It's incredible. It comes easily to them. Most of us are not like that. If you are, please come and tell me, because it's really helpful to identify who the evangelists are in a church. But all of us have to follow this command of Jesus. So how do we do it? Well, we have three A's to help us this time. Always, appropriate, and. And yes, the third A is and. We'll find out why in a moment. When I was training to be a vicar, Part of the training is you do what's called a long summer placement, which is long, and it happens in the summer, and you're on placement in a church with a vicar. In my final week, at the end of the summer, three sisters visited the vicarage because they each wanted their children baptised, and they also wanted to be the godmothers of each other's children. It's a sort of complicated diagram. So we sat in the vicar's study, and we started to chat As he talked about baptism and some of what it means, it was clear that they carried a lot of shame and an awareness of their brokenness. So the vicar got his Bible out and he shared some verses with them, just a handful, four or five. And using those verses, he shared the gospel about our sinfulness and our forgiveness and new life in Jesus. I've never seen anything like it. They were ready to give their lives to Jesus right there and then. So the vicar gave them all a little pamphlet to read, prayed with them, and off they went to come back the following week. Now, that's unusual, but it could happen to any of us. If a friend who knows and trusts you asks about baptism, what would you say? And a good answer is not, let me give you the vicar's phone number. Although, of course, you can, 
But it's much better if in that moment you have something to say. If this faith is the most important thing in your life, how could you not have something to say? But it helps to think in advance. Tomorrow morning, when that person asks you what you did at the weekend, what are you going to say? If you don't get involved in gossip, and I hope you don't gossip, when someone notices and asks why not, what are you going to say? Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And that's why the first A is always. You never know when the opportunity might arise. So we always have to be ready to make the most of it. Have you thought about how you might share the gospel with someone? Have you? I don't know. I hope so. If you haven't and you're in a home group, perhaps that's something you think about in your home group this week. In my last job, my last church, I had a phone call from a a distressed man whose wife had died from COVID. It was during one of those weird lockdown rules bits where I was allowed to do a funeral visit and sit in his garden or something. They'd already had a humanist service, but now he was not able to sleep. He was afraid that his wife wasn't at peace. He wasn't a Christian, so he called the local vicar, me, in desperation rather than hope. I was absolutely the last person that he had called for help. And so we sat in his garden and we chatted and we prayed together. I used one or two of the prayers from the funeral book. We gave thanks to God for his wife and for those who were supporting him. And I read a passage from the Bible. And as I was about to leave, he asked when church was going to reopen, because he said he wanted to come along. Uh, I mean, Nigel, no. This is the sort of thing people say to vicars. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I I don't come as often as I'd like. Or, oh, yes, I'll see you next week, vicar. And uh, I mean, maybe one percent of the time they mean it. I think they mean it maybe in the moment, but it just doesn't happen. So I was there going, yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, I told him that our place of welcome was about to reopen on the grass outside church. We weren't allowed in the building yet, of course. As I said, it was one of those weird lockdown bits of rules. So I said, our place of welcome, there's a marquee in case it rains. We're going to serve tea and coffee and cake on the grass outside church. So you'd be very welcome. And blow me down, he was the first person there that day. And then when the building reopened, he was the first person in the building for the service. And last time I checked, he was still going. Now, I did not read that Bible passage I said I read to him was not one of the ones the vicar had used, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I did not tell him that verse. That would not have been appropriate. Instead, I read this one. Do not be anxious about everything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the second day is appropriate. The good news about Jesus has many facets and aspects, and you don't have to say them all at once. The key thing is that a grieving widower probably doesn't want some young vicar to stand there telling him he's a sinner and needs to be forgiven. That is true, he is, and he does. But in that moment... The aspect of the gospel that he most needed to hear was that Jesus brings peace and protection. 
We need to discern which aspect of the gospel is appropriate in any given situation. And that means we need to be listening. We need to listen to the people that we're talking to, to ask good questions, to find out where they're at, so that we can go, okay, this bit of what Jesus taught, or this bit of the gospel, I think that's what this person needs to hear. I didn't plan to read that passage from Philippians. It came to mind as we were praying. I mean, it's a fairly, it's a fairly well-known passage, but it felt in the moment that that was what he needed to hear. And so I read that to him. Our next series, after this series on mission, is going to be looking at some of these different facets of the gospel. The purpose of that series is to help us learn what the gospel is from all sorts of different angles. To help us then to share it in appropriate ways. The final A is and. This is from John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. That verse may just be my favorite description of Jesus in the Bible. It combines his glory and his humanity in one. How he is at the same time utterly different and yet one of us. And how he is full of grace and truth. And that's why the final A is and. Now I'm happy to confess that I love salt. And if you use salt in your food, I love a salty flavor. But salt also brings out other flavors, doesn't it? It makes sweet things a little bit sweeter. It counteracts bitterness that you sometimes get in green vegetables. It actually also helps release aromas. There's some molecule chemical thing going on that the chemists will tell you about, I'm sure, that releases aromas. And I found out this morning that also it enhances color. So it makes green things greener and orange things oranger. And it enhances texture as well in things like bread. And of course, it's a preservative. Salt is good. Except we're not allowed it anymore, are we? <laughs> I've now started adding salt to my baked beans because I find them so bland now that they've taken all the salt out of them. Salt is good. But too much salt spoils the meal. If I took my tin of baked beans and poured it into a, a saucepan and then filled that can with salt and tipped that salt into the can, I don't know what would happen. It would be pretty disgusting, wouldn't it? Paul puts it like this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, sometimes that's explained as Paul saying, don't be boring. <laughs> Be an interesting sort of person. Have salty conversations. But what if Paul is talking about how to get the right proportion between grace and truth in our conversations? What if when we speak, we should be full of grace, sharing God's love and his mercy and his goodness, lavishing them on others as he has on us, seasoned with a little bit of salt? How easy it is to be full of grace. It is attractive. It is winsome. No one's going to argue with it. 
yet keep quiet about the truth. It's the opposite error to putting 50% salt in your baked beans. For me anyway, is no salt at all. A little salt is good. We all need to hear the truth about the state we're in. We all need to hear about our need for repentance and the wonderful promise of forgiveness and new life that is only in Jesus. That is the truth that sets us free. So, had our motivation and our method. We make new disciples because we are compelled by the love and the wonder of God. We have received ourselves. Because of our compassion for the lost and because we are commanded by Jesus. And we do it by always being ready to share our faith. By sharing it in appropriate ways, full of grace and truth. This is Andrew and Peter from John 1. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who'd heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, and he brought him to Jesus. Some of you will know who William Temple is. He was an Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, I don't know, 100 years ago, something like that. And in his commentary on John's Gospel, when he got to that verse, verse chapter 1, verse 42, he wrote this. The greatest service that one man or woman can render another. And he brought him to Jesus. Thing is, though, do we believe that? As a church, do we really believe that the greatest service we can offer someone who comes through those doors is to say, here's Jesus? Do we believe that? This is Billy Graham. He was an incredible preacher and evangelist. He preached to hundreds of millions of people. Some of us here probably heard him at Villa Park. Yeah, one or two of you, 1984. Some of you may even be Christians because of those Billy Graham missions. I think he's probably preached to more people than anyone in the history of the world, something like that. But for most of us, that's not what making disciples looks like. You'll know this story if you've done Alpha. Let me tell you about Albert McMakin. He was the son of a farmer. He came to faith in Jesus and he was so full of excitement that he filled his truck with his friends to take them to a meeting so they could hear about Jesus. He was in that early compulsion. He just couldn't help himself face. But one of his friends refused. He was a good-looking lad, apparently, and he was far too interested in girls to be bothered with all that Jesus religion nonsense. But Albert didn't give up. Eventually, he persuaded his friends to come. The clincher apparently was letting him drive the truck. And his friend was spellbound by the preacher. And he went back night after night after night and ended up giving his life to Jesus. The year was 1934, and Albert's friend was Billy Graham. Some of us are here because of Billy Graham. But most of us are here because of our own Albert McMakin. Maybe several Albert McMakins who invited us to come and see for ourselves, who didn't give up 
when we said no, but who kept saying, come and see. It isn't easy, but neither is it particularly complicated. Jesus is what people need the most. Jesus is what the church has to offer the world. And making disciples is the mission he has given us. So let us pray and ask him to help us do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus, for giving us your Son, for pouring out your love on us in him. We thank you that he was willing to die in our place so that we might live. We thank you that however much shame and brokenness is in our lives, your love is greater. And I ask, Father, that you would help us, that you would give us the confidence to talk about our faith, to introduce others to Jesus, to say, come and see. He is what you're looking for.